0: Are we living in a post-factual world? A world where it becomes ever more difficult to know which sources of information we can trust, where we can no longer be sure whether our leading politicians are speaking the truth and where even the most fundamental scientific facts seem to become debatable. If this is the case, then how big a danger is this for our societies and for democracy? Welcome to our Post-Truth Politics, Meet the Team podcast. My name is Auður Aristotir, and I will be your host today. The questions I post in the beginning of the episode are some of the questions that we ask in the research project Post-Truth Politics, Nationalism and the Delegitimization of European Integration. The project is based on a network of researchers from universities in six countries in Europe and North America. And our research is funded by a Jean Money Network grant from the European Union. The project is led by Havde Peace Center at the University of Iceland, and I work there as a project manager. And the academic coordinator of the project is Maximilian Konrad, a professor of political science at the University of Iceland. And Professor Conrad is with me here today to discuss the project and how we can begin to answer the questions of trust, post-factual politics, and its effect on democratic debate in Europe. So welcome, Professor Conrad.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. Uh, So the aim of the research network is to study the impact of post-truth politics on European integration, but not everyone necessarily understands what you mean by post-truth politics. Could you explain the concept?
1: Well, broadly speaking, we see a profound change in political culture. And that change has to do with the status of truth in today's societies and politics. So to put it very bluntly, um, the president of the United States lies all the time, gets facts wrong all the time and dismisses all justified criticism as fake news. But what's even more striking is that, although many of us are outraged, this doesn't seem to matter at all to Trump supporters. And of course, this brings up fundamental questions. How, how can this be? I mean, how do we end up in this situation and what can we do about it? Um, But of course, our research doesn't focus on Trump, at least not um, per se. Um, We see a much broader development. So the starting point for our research network is that we're observing a fundamental change in political culture. And this fundamental change is very closely connected to um, a change in the way people, or many people at least look at what truth is and what role truth and truthfulness should play in politics and in political discourse. So on the one hand, more and more people seem to care less and less about the extent to which politicians are speaking the truth. But on the other hand, we can also see Um, that the very idea of what truth is, is becoming increasingly controversial. So, in this sense, post-truth is also connected to the status of empirical science. Basically, how science and scientific findings appear to become increasingly contentious and are often viewed basically as biased or simply as an opinion that isn't uh, any more valid than any other. So, so post-truth has a lot to do with information, Uh, both in the sense of sources of information and how information is processed. So basically, where people get their information, how this has changed over time, how attitudes to established sources of information are changing, but maybe most importantly, how trust in the media is fading, um, how social media are becoming more and more important, and how social and digital media can be used to spread disinformation and and manipulate people. And I think that... uh, Trump's inauguration is a great example. Um, on the day of the inauguration, Trump spokesman Sean Spicer claimed that it was the biggest in history. Um, and we know that this is evidently incorrect. And we can shake our heads or laugh about it or wonder how this, can, how this guy can get away with saying something like this. But of course, Trump's approach to the coronavirus shows how serious this problem actually is because it has cost many, many lives. But to us, the most striking aspect is that it doesn't seem to have any significant political consequences. Basically, he gets away with it. And to me, um, I mean, this aspect of getting away with it is one of the hallmarks of post-truth politics. Now, you could say that politics has always involved an element of deception, manipulation, bending the truth, and so on. But we see an important difference. To us in the post-truth era, we see a lack of consequences. And this has to do, like I said in the beginning, with the status of truth as such. So, regarding the crowd size at Trump's inauguration, I mean, the Trump administration famously claimed to merely be presenting alternative facts. And this is, of course, laughable. But it points to a much deeper issue in what in what constitutes post-truth politics. It isn't simply the lack of consequences of making factually incorrect statements. It is that facts themselves seem to be becoming contentious. So basically, essentially a matter of opinion. So basically, if you don't like the facts, well, you can just make up your own.
0: Well, this sounds a lot as if post-truth politics were the same as or at least very similar to fake news. Is there a difference between the two? And why do you prefer to use post-truth politics?
1: Uh, Well, fake news is certainly a a similarly popular concept, and and it refers to a phenomenon that is very closely connected to what we are talking about when we speak about post-truth politics. Um, Both have to do with misinformation and disinformation, and we understand misinformation simply as... Um, factually incorrect information and disinformation as factually incorrect information with a specific purpose, namely to deceive and to manipulate people. Um, That's a very fundamental but also a very crucial distinction. Um, But the reason why we prefer the concept of post-truth politics over fake news is basically the following. Um, The concept of fake news is used predominantly to discredit critical media. And it's very well known that Uh, that Donald Trump likes to use this. I mean, when he's faced with critical questions from the media, he simply resorts to the tactic of calling them fake news. He does this, obviously, um, in order to shut down any kind of discussion. And this is by no means a phenomenon that we can only observe in the U.S. under Trump. I mean, we can also see it in other places. Um, I mean, what comes to mind is, for instance, the way the far right has been using the concept of liar press uh, especially in uh, in Germany, for instance, in the context of the Pegida marches, uh, but also in response to, uh, to the uh, measures to fight the spread of the coronavirus. And I mean, this is, of course, not at all what we have in mind when we're studying post-truth politics. I mean, we're interested in political processes that are characterized by misinformation and disinformation. So basically questions such as, Who is it that spreads mis- and disinformation? When and where does this happen? And especially what kind of consequences does it have? Uh, And in our case, most of all, I mean, uh, to what extent does this have consequences for European integration and the European Union?
0: Mm -hmm. And so what makes it so important to understand how post-truth politics work?
1: Well, in the context of our Jean Monnet network, we are first and foremost interested in the impact of post-truth politics on European integration. Um, but of course, the implications of post-truth politics are much broader. This is also reflected in, uh, in the disciplines that we have represented in our network. Uh, because we're political scientists, we're sociologists, we have media scholars, we have historians. So it's a fairly broad um, network of researchers and a fairly broad approach. And, essentially, we're interested in post-truth politics in the sense that um, we are concerned about its implications for democracy in general, um, but also for political communication in democratic societies, uh, for the quality of public debates in the public sphere, and so on. And um, if it is true that the very status of the truth um, is changing, I mean, if the truth as a concept is losing its, its symbolic authority, um, and if even basic facts are becoming contested, then I think it's no exaggeration that democracy uh, will have a fundamental problem. Because um, I see it as very difficult to imagine how how any kind of political discussion is supposed to be possible if we cannot even agree on basic facts, or, or basically I should say if we cannot accept basic facts as such. Uh, and I think this is a particular problem for democracies, for. A very simple reason, namely that uh, discussion, debate, argumentation and so on are basically the lifeblood of any functioning democracy. And um, I would make the claim that the the COVID pandemic is a striking illustration of how serious this problem is. Uh, Serious not so much in the sense of... You know, a few thousand people protesting governmental restrictions in in so-called hygiene protests in Berlin. I mean, this is something that a democratic society can and by all means has to be able to live with, because contestation is very important in democracy. But what is much more concerning to us is is how scientific facts are dismissed as either you know just one theory or one opinion among many, uh, or worse, as an outright lie or um, even simply as a conspiracy, and I think it's clear that if this spreads to wider sections of societies, then the consequences will will be unimaginable. And uh, and this development is particularly concerning because we can link it to the rise of digital and social media and also the gradual decline of trust in established media institutions, basically journalism. Mm
0: -hmm. So is post-truth politics, as you understand it, a new phenomenon, or has it always been around, in some form?
1: Well, I think this is, in, in a sense, one of the defining questions in the debate on post-truth politics, uh, or a lot, at, at least a lot of the debates uh, focus on this very question, because there's a lot of people that are saying, uh, you know, this has always been an aspect of politics. Uh, so many scholars dispute that this is actually a new phenomenon, but I think it's, it's fairly banal to point out that some element of deceit or manipulation has always existed in politics. I think that's something that we can easily agree on, um, but there are some c- contemporary developments that indicate, at least to me, that we are talking about something quite new, um, both in quantitative terms, uh, but also in qualitative terms. Um, On the one hand, I mean, we can claim that a president like Donald Trump would have been unthinkable before the the era of post-truth politics, at least in the way we understand it. Um, Because, I mean, why would anyone tolerate someone as their democratically elected leader who cannot seem to stop lying or who who simply doesn't seem to care about the facts? Um, So, I mean, the important question for us is why... Why does it seem to be acceptable today? I mean, what are the conditions? What what made this possible? So, um, there must be something beyond socioeconomic explanations that can account for this. Uh, and one of the starting points is that the the changing media environment is clearly something that we have to be uh, that we have to consider in this context.
0: Mm-hmm. And what role do technological developments play?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's quite common to say that that digital, and in particular social media, play a key role in the emergence of post-truth politics. Uh, And actually quite a bit has already been written about this. And it is quite striking um, to see how the rise of the Internet and later digital and social media um, has basically gone hand-in-hand with the decline of trust in mainstream journalism. And basically how this has led to the emergence of post-truth politics. Um, there's some very interesting literature that talks about um, the impact of social media on the public sphere. Um, for instance, Cass Sunstein is one of the famous authors that, that has argued very convincingly how social media contribute on the one hand to the fragmentation of the public sphere. Um, so basically that in the age of social media, there is no longer kind of uh, any overarching communicative space in which we can debate with one another. Um and where we're exposed, basically, to to unexpected information that that can challenge our our own views. Uh, Instead, um, I mean, basically, we're now faced with a a public sphere that is made up of um, some kind of semi-public sphere of virtually limitless, limitless echo chambers. And in these echo chambers, the information that we're exposed to is essentially tailored to our interests and to our preferences, and basically this results in us speaking almost exclusively to people who have very similar views, so basically to like-minded people. And this, this is again Sunstein's argument, I mean this bears the risk of polarization. So basically the idea that um, views become more extreme or radical simply, are, simply because they are based on one-sided information and they're formed among people who basically held the same views from the outset. But Of course, technological developments can be even scarier uh, when we think of post-truth politics from the vantage point of targeted disinformation campaigns. So basically the idea that uh, social media are something that has made it possible and actually um, relatively easy to spread disinformation and even to to direct such disinformation to any specific target group, as we've seen, for instance, in the Brexit referendum or in the uh, the U.S. presidential election in 2016.
0: If you look at the research that your network has already done, are there any specific political issues that seem particularly prone to disinformation or post-truth politics? Hmm.
1: Well, our research network is primarily interested in European integration, but uh, I mean we do see that there are certain policy areas in which disinformation tends to play a, an important role. Um, I mean, for instance, in the wake of the, the refugee crisis in 2015, 2016, migration was clearly such an issue. And this is one of the reasons why one of the four work packages in our network um, focuses specifically on, on the mediatization and politicization of immigration. Uh, this is the work that is coordinated by our partners at the University of Helsinki in Finland. Um, but I also think that the, uh, the COVID pandemic shows us very clearly how Um, Situations of scientific uncertainty are, um, well, an extremely fertile ground for disinformation and and also post-truth politics.
0: And your network focuses in particular on the impact of post-truth politics on European integration. And why is this focus so important?
1: Mm. Well, I think that in some ways... um, European integration and the European Union have always been uh, an easy target for disinformation, at least since since the emergence of Euroscepticism in the early 1990s after the Maastricht Treaty. Um, This is possibly connected to the fact that um, the EU is often seen as very far away from the average citizen, uh, and basically that most people know relatively little about how decision making works in the EU institutions. and this has made it quite easy for Euroskeptic actors to, well, essentially exploit ideas about the EU as, as some kind of undemocratic polity, as a super state in the making, uh, as a bureaucratic monster, as a money waster, and so on. And such voices have been especially loud in, in referendum campaigns around major treaty changes. I mean, if you think, for instance, about... Uh, the Maastricht Treaty, if you think about the Constitutional Treaty, if you think about the debates surrounding the Lisbon Treaty and so on. Um, but of course, the rise of post-truth politics, as we understand it, uh, has only made this problem worse. And we, we, we do see this reflected in, in the rise of uh, right-wing populism, both at the domestic and at the European levels. And I think that Brexit is, uh, well, possibly the key example of what mis- and disinformation... Uh, campaigns can result in when it comes to questions of European integration, um, especially because um, well, because of the central role that digital and social media have played played in in spreading such mis- and disinformation. Um, but I also think that we also need to pay attention to the kinds of mis- and disinformation processes that play out in relation to the EU in, in domestic and in European elections.
0: Mm. Um, the project runs from the t- from two thousand and nineteen to two thousand and twenty two. What do you expect to find out in the course of this research project, and what will be know? What will we know at the end of the project that we don't know already?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a good question because we do know quite a bit about kind of the phenomenon of of post truth politics to start out with, but I think this is also kind of an an emerging discussion, so it's uh, it's good that we participate in this, basically, from the outset. But, well, first of all, uh, we obviously want our research to, to provide a better understanding of post-truth politics. I mean, that's the first and, and overarching ambition. We want to provide a better conceptual understanding, that is, uh, to explain what constitutes post-truth politics, how serious the challenge is that it presents to democracy, uh, well, also to the public sphere and more specifically to European integration. So, well, part of this work is, is theoretical, um, but much of the output of the project is going to be empirical. So essentially the network will provide a huge amount of material and analyses uh, that I hope will give us a clear understanding of, of you know, what constitutes the challenge of post-truth politics, not just in theoretical but also in empirical terms. Um, But maybe our most important ambition um, is, you know, that that all this research that we do will also feed into a more informed understanding of what needs to be done, especially by policymakers uh, in order to tackle this problem. So uh, the network does much more than, you know, quote unquote, merely produce academic books and articles. I mean, it's also our ambition that we want to spread knowledge about post-truth politics um, to wider circles. Civil society. So, for instance, we organize public workshops, we organize webinars, and then, of course, not least, this podcast series. Um, and we're doing that in the hope that we can raise awareness for the problem of, but also solutions to post-truth politics. But um, part of our output is also specifically tailored to uh, to policymakers. So, um, we do produce policy briefs, uh, and I'm completely convinced that our conclusions will yield. Um, quite important lessons for policymakers when it comes to um, well essentially citizenship education uh, but also information literacy more generally, because um, you know, we might say that post-truth politics may not be a particularly serious problem for those of us who are trained in in practicing source criticism, that is those who already have the competence basically to uh, to assess the credibility of various sources of information and so on. But in a democratic society, of course, everyone needs to have this competence. um, And it will have to be part of the curriculum already in primary and secondary schools. Um, And it will not only have to be part of the curriculum, but um, we also need to develop ways uh, in which these kinds of competences can be taught and learned effectively.
0: Yeah, I think these will be a really fine uh, last words for this podcast uh, today. And we look of course forward to uh, continue the discussion. Uh, thank you for being with me here today, Professor Conrad. and thank you, thank you, very you much. for taking the time, yeah, <laughs> to discuss this important issue of post-truth politics and its implications for democratic debate in Europe. This podcast was the first episode of the Meet the Team podcast hosted by the Post-Truth Politics Research Network. Next up is our team from ARENA, Center for European Studies at the University of Oslo, the people behind the first episodes of our Post-Truth Politics podcasts, where we discuss different aspects of the post-factual world with experts around the globe. And for more episodes and continued discussion on our Post Truth politics, follow us on Facebook and on our website, PostTruth.is. My name is Oeder, and this was the first episode of Post Truth Politics Meet the Team. Professor Maximilian Conrad. Thank you for listening and tune in for our next episode.